Please do open your Bibles to Colossians 1. Um, it's on page 1713 in the Brown Bibles, page 1713. Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read to you a passage which is uncertain whether Paul wrote it originally or whether he was just reciting what some people think may have been a song that the early church sang because it's so lofty and powerful in its language. And it centers around Jesus. I'll read to you from verse 15. At the bottom of the page. It begins like this. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him. All things were created. In heaven. And on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in Everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is not a traditional uh, passage to think about or look at or study at Christmas time. Because there's no, um, there's no shepherds, there's no angels. Well, they are referenced only by the by. There's no Magi, there's no Joseph, there's no Mary, there's no baby. Um, it, it is really very much just about Jesus. And um, the reason I wanted to look at this is not because in any way I think um, that the narratives aren't important in the Gospels. Uh, they absolutely are. But I think sometimes through familiarity, we can lose the impact of what Christmas is about. So what I wanted to do was look at this passage, which gives us a little bit more of a... Um, it helps us to kind of peel back a little bit under the storyline of what happened and understand the significance of it, the meaning of it. I think the hardest thing to do at Christmas time is to celebrate Christ. And I hope that in in us considering something of what Christmas means and what Christ coming to earth means, I hope that you'll join with me in marveling at the wisdom of God in a fresh way as you go into this amazing time of year. And the question that I want us to wrestle with then is simply why this way? Why when we look at the story of what happened, of a virgin being pregnant, giving birth to a child, it all happening in, in a stable in Bethlehem and people coming to worship. Why did God choose to do it this way, to save the world in this particular way? That's the question I want us to think about. And I'm going to give you three answers that kind of come from, from this passage, certainly inferred, and uh, let me just tell you them up front. That it has to do with, firstly, strength out of weakness. Secondly, goodness out of badness. And thirdly, 
newness out of oldness. Strength out of weakness, goodness out of badness, newness out of oldness. So let's consider each of these things in turn. First of all, strength out of weakness. Paul says here, For in him, verse 19, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You may have read that and not, it not fully impacted you what he's saying there. He is talking about the human person, Jesus Christ, and saying that all of the fullness of God was pleased to find residence in that one man, that he is both God and man completely. And the thing that ought to, to, to puzzle, cause us questions, cause us to think, is the reality of how so much power can be contained in so much weakness. I've had two babies, um, one of them just six months ago. And whenever I've been holding my, my newborns, I, one of the things that has struck me time and time again is just how utterly dependent they are. They're the weakest thing in the world, as Naomi said in her prayer. There's nothing weaker than, than a baby. Uh, they can't even hold their head up, at least when a baby you know, giraffe is born, the thing can walk, can't it, or whatever. You look at other animals, they seem pretty competent from day one. And then you look at humans, and we're, we're basically, you can only do two things, it's cry and suck. And I've just been amazed at how weak a child is when they're born. And here's Jesus, he's born in, in total weakness, total dependence, total vulnerability, it seems. And it's not just... It's not just him being a baby that ought to, ought to communicate that to us. It's even as we, we read through the Gospels and we look at the life of Jesus, we realize that he chose a pattern of weakness. That he, he chose to dwell in weakness, not just in his birth, but throughout his life. I say that because when you're, when you're looking at the stories, you're reading about the adult Christ, it, it was true of him even as he grows older is that he's not one who draws attention to himself for his majesty, his glory, his strength. Do you remember how Paul put it just in the, the previous letter? When he's talking about the Son of God, that he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but it says he emptied himself. So the Son of God existing before the world began emptied himself, sort of divested himself, undressed himself of all his majesty and glory and power as he puts it. Um, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. The, the one thing you need to, to grasp is that I'm talking about Christ in his weakness here. Emptying himself as a servant. Now, we don't have servants in modern um, Britain. We have um, all kinds of other things. We have a, a, a class system that's alive and kicking you only have to look at our, our power structures and the men who are in power and realize that we very much have a class system of upper and middle and lower and you know, how all, most of our, our most elite politicians were educated in the top schools in the country and, and, uh, and, and so on. And you look at work situations and how the, the middle class dream for most people is for women it's to, um, to, to have it all and to go to work and to have children. And then, of course, there, there are other classes where you pass off to look after your children for you 
And then you look at men who go to work, the professional class, the, the, who work in service industries, who, who give off their, uh, the, the things they can't do, like repairing the car and fixing the sink. They pay for guys to do it. And those guys also employ unqualified guys to do their dirty jobs in the building work. So we, ha- we definitely have this kind of structure in society. And the thing that Paul wants us to grasp about Christ is that whichever way you look at it, Jesus took the very lowest place. Not only in becoming a baby and becoming a man, but also in the fact that he was born in abject poverty. A working class man. This is why when Isaiah is talking about the coming of Jesus, he says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. I don't think he's just talking about his physical appearance. It may capture that, that maybe Jesus just wasn't the best looking guy around. Weird thought, isn't it? You never really thought about that. But it may also, it may also, in fact, it probably also is speaking about that he didn't have the trappings of power, the things that make people attractive. Powerful men, rich men are attractive. Not to me, <laughs> but there's a sort of appeal. Do you see what I mean? Jesus had none of that. He was. A guy, if you passed in the street, you wouldn't look twice. He came from Nazareth. Do you remember how when Philip goes to tell Nathaniel about this Jesus he's just heard about? And he says, come and meet him. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I'm not sure what the, the, the modern equivalent is, but it's, it's probably Glasgow or, sorry, many Scots, or maybe Birmingham, we could say. Um, I know we've got one or two Brummies in the church, so <laughs> can anything good come out of Birmingham? I think this is a very, very, very deliberate thing that Jesus chose not only to be born into poverty, not only to be a baby, but also to be born in, in Bethlehem and grow up in Nazareth, the back end of, of Israel. Or the northern accent of all things. <laughs> Jesus, the Nazarene, he's ignoble in his humanity. He, he's incredible in the original sense of the word, that there's no credibility to this man. How could he be the ruler of his people? And, though, and so it, it seems to me that when we're thinking about this baby, one of the things that ought to strike us is just how almost impossible it is to become a worshipper of, of this child. It takes a miracle work of God for people to become worshippers. It takes seeing a star that doesn't, didn't exist the night before. Or it takes seeing a, a choir of angels, if you're a shepherd, telling you to come and worship. Because otherwise you would just walk past and ignore this poor family in a stable. I think that we are meant to see in Christ someone who is the underdog. He's the hobbit. In the Lord of the Rings, he's Rocky in Rocky 1, the most unexpected victor. You don't expect him to do well. And the reason I stress this for you as you contemplate the birth of Christ is that if you're a person who feels your weakness, Jesus is the savior you need. I mentioned earlier how 
you know, our politicians often, I'm not trying to get political or be critical, really. I'm just trying to point out facts here. So often they're educated in schools that show that they're from a very elite background. And one of the grievances normal people have is, well, how could they possibly understand my situation? And the answer is, well, they can't. But then we look at Jesus and we realize that rather than coming from a place on high and taking his, 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 his place of authority and rule, rather he stooped down, as Paul said, emptying himself, taking the form of a servant so that he would be one who could understand with the likes of of us, weak people. Which is why in the book of Hebrews, he keeps laboring this point. He says things like this. He says that he had to be made like his brothers. In other words, he had to be like you with all of your humanity, your grogginess in the morning, your tiredness at night, your feeling temptation to get angry when you're hungry. All of that stuff. He had to be like exactly like you in that sense so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So that he could understand you is what he's saying. He goes on in the next chapter, in in chapter 4, he says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So we don't have one who represents us to God who was born in elite circumstances and doesn't really get you. It says, on the contrary, we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So when Paul says, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, we need to understand that, God, that, that Paul is saying, that God is saying to us, Jesus has stooped down to your level to understand you in, in, in the depths of your weakness, my weakness. Not to leave us there, because he says in the book of Ephesians, things like this. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So God doesn't just want you to understand that you're a weak person. He also wants you to understand that God's power is now at work within you if you believe in him. But, isn't it the case that day after day we just feel our weakness And praise God that we can come to a saviour who was a baby. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And this speaks to me in a profound way because on a daily basis I feel the weakness of, of my humanity and of my failings and of my incompetencies and of my limitations. I don't open up about it because it's probably not helpful to any of you. But it's true of me just as it's true of you. I take comfort from the fact that I have a saviour who, who remembers that I'm dust. Because he knows what dust feels like. And in fact, who, who is happy for us to feel our weakness? Because he says, he says to Paul, my strength and my power is made perfect in weakness. It's actually in the moment of your you're feeling most like a vulnerable baby that God's power is is at work in you. How precious that is as a thought, isn't it? There's nothing twee about the baby Jesus. Nothing shallow. Nothing weak in the sense of it being a non-compelling idea. It is a precious thing that we can come and worship one who was born in a stable. Secondly, goodness out of badness. Paul says here, he says, he goes on, he says uh, that he, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He says, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things. 
The idea that we're getting here is that when we look at the situation we're in, and talking about the world at large, we look at mess, don't we? We look at a total mess. And often it's been, it seems to be the common storyline of many religions is that we need to be kind of rescued from this mess, that this mess needs to be trashed and that we're going to be airlifted to something better. In fact, a lot of Christians kind of think of God's plan for us in that way, that, that our hope is just heaven, it's, it's being taken out of the earth. In fact, even science is, is pushing in that direction because a lot of scientists have a very, very bleak picture of what's happening to the world. If, if not even over, over millennia, as we experience a heat death in the universe, uh, so not millennia, but billions of years, they would say, even just in the very imminent future, our planet is, is doomed because we've ruined it. And so the answer is, well, we need to get lifted off this planet and put somewhere else. That's why there's going to be a mission being planned to put some, the first settlers on Mars. It sounds like science fiction, but it's actually, it's actually in, the, in, in the pipeline. The Bible doesn't think that way. God doesn't plan that way. The Bible uses language like redemption and reconciliation. As it says here, in him, through him to reconcile to himself all things. Probably the closest word that we use in day-to-day language today is the word recycling. So we take something that's old and now defunct and useless, and rather than chucking it in landfill, it goes through a process of reclamation, of redemption, of renewal, in order to be recycled and back in circulation. The trouble with recycling is usually you end up with something that's just a little bit more brown and a little bit less nice than the original, don't you? So it's not a perfect picture of what we're talking about here because we're talking about the very opposite. That when we're talking about redemption in the biblical picture, it's taking something that's slightly damaged or broken and putting it through a process of renewal and reconciliation so that it will be better. The reason why this is so important for us at Christmas is because Christ, by becoming baby, was reaffirming the goodness that he put into his creation in the first place. Do you remember how the passage began? It says, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So it's his possession. What did he want to do with it? When he saw that the world was broken, he didn't want to trash the whole thing. So here's a picture. If you were to come across, and these days it's, it's very desirable to, attain, to acquire old Properties. If you came across a derelict old property that had something about it that's beautiful, but there's lots that needs doing to it. The pipework is broken, the electrics are gone, the brickwork is crumbling, the wood is rotten, the tiles are falling off. What do you do? Do you bulldoze the whole thing? As has often tragically happened to many old things, and just start afresh. Sometimes you have to, but... That's not the picture we're getting here of what Jesus planned for his world. No, no, you have to do two things. Firstly, you've got to acquire it for yourself. You need to take ownership of this thing so that it's your decision to make. Now, when we have Jesus, we know that ultimately creation was his anyway. It was always his. But when you read the story of the Bible, he entrusted it to a caretaker, a man who would have dominion. His name was Adam. And Adam was a very poor caretaker of this household. He let it fall into disarray and ruin. 
And in order for Christ to do something about this situation, he has to get the keys back off Adam. Reclaim what was his. Take the deed, the property deed, away from Adam and claim it back as his own. That is why Jesus becomes a man, because the transference has to go from one man to another. He has to become, as Paul puts it, the second Adam, the new start. So not only then does he have to reacquire it for himself, he then has to get to work in rebuilding and reclaiming, or as it puts it here, reconciling all things to himself. And when you boil this down to the very earthy, gritty realities of day-to-day life, what it means is this. That everything around us that's crumbling and tainted by sin is now being reclaimed by Jesus in his creation. I'm talking about stuff like beer and food and sex and work and relationships and friendships and trees and ecology and technology. I don't know if this is a new thought to you, but I think there's something to this. There's there's quite a strong um, tradition in certain, certain camps of theology where they talk about you know, with some speculation, but I think with some justification in the Bible, what is Christ doing in the world? And when we look at the end of the story, the new world that Christ is creating, what will it have from the old world? And I, I think there's a lot more continuity than any of us have even dared imagine. That the best of what man has created in this world is not going to be obliterated and and the slate wiped clean why why should we start from further back in the new creation but rather it's going to be uplifted and redeemed so things like the Taj Mahal will become a place I'm not saying this to you as gospel truth I'm just saying suggesting some ideas to you become a place of Marveling in the wonders of God in his creation and his, the ingenuity he placed in man. I love cities. Why should, I don't think that the new creation is just going to be a cityless grassland or something. There's something so wonderful about the things that we make being redeemed and recovered. Things like the internet. Now, I don't suppose that in the new creation we're going to have some kind of telepathic communication. I think we're going to need real things to communicate with. And the internet might be one of those things, or it might be something new by then. But Except you strip away all that, that's wicked about it. You know, isn't the internet just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil now on steroids? So you take away all of that, and, and, and what you're left with is the potential for more ways to glorify God. Now to me, when I think about Jesus taking on human flesh, it was for that purpose that he could lift us and everything, in fact, that he'd created up out of the gutter. This is why when you read the judgment account early in Genesis, when the flood happened and God wipes the slate, he says, I'll never do it again. Not like that. And instead, the next time he comes as a boy, a baby boy in a manger, because he wants to reclaim the world. To reconcile all things to himself. Which means that. Just think about Christmas. The Christmas that's coming. 
So much that has attached itself to, to this festival has absolutely nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. I'm talking about tinsel. I don't know where tinsel comes from or why we have tinsel. We talk about things like um, fairy lights and mulled wine and mince pies and good drinks and wonderfully roasted turkeys and all the rest of it. What, are, what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, frankly, nothing. But, but, in a roundabout way, Christ is the reason why, as a Christian, you can enjoy those things with a more deep gratitude and thankfulness for the stuff of this earth because Jesus said, I'm not a world denier. I didn't come to save you from the world. I came to be the savior of the world, including all of the things you enjoy at Christmas. He came to reconcile all things to himself. It's not that we can't find ways to sin in all of these opportunities. We can. But when Paul says a bit later in Colossians that we should put to death what's earthly in us, he's not talking about the stuff of the earth. He's not saying we should be world deniers who turn our backs on creation. He goes on and explains exactly what he means. He says things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He talks about wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and things like this. What Paul is concerned with when we, to kill sin is, is exactly that. It's a sin. It's not the world itself that's the problem. It's our hearts, isn't it? How precious that Jesus came to redeem this world with all of the goodness that he put in creation by dealing with the sickness that was at the heart, the problem of sin, which corrupts it all. Goodness out of badness. And this speaks to me at a very personal level because I am the kind of person who has a very strong legalistic streak that I have to fight constantly. And I think by nature... By temperament, I tend to think that holiness is, is pure self-denial. Just casting aside everything good in the world. And the Bible tells me again and again that that's not what it is. You can do that and still fool yourself that you're holy and you're not. Paul writes that everything is to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. How precious that we can be holy in the goodness of creation. That's part of the meaning of what Jesus did for us in becoming a baby inside his creation. Strength out of weakness, goodness out of badness, and finally, newness out of oldness. He says a little bit earlier in verse 18, he says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus, he says, is the beginning. I think he means Jesus in his humanity both at his birth and, of course, later at his resurrection. And the question is, he's the beginning of what? And I think that the answer has something to do with your deepest longings. I think all of us have longings that are never quite fulfilled in the way that we feel they should be. Longings for relationships that will be perfectly satisfying and fulfilling. Longings for work that will be rewarding in the purest, most full sense. A kind of wistfulness when you see a sunset or 
you're in a beautiful place that, that you say, I wish that I could fully enjoy this moment and that it would never end. And I think that those longings are not a corruption of who you are, that they're echoes of what you were meant to be. The book of Ecclesiastes said that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. So when it says of Jesus that he's the beginning, the firstborn, I think it's talking about something that our longings have been telling us all along, that we're, we're waiting for something new, something better, something deeper, something more real, something more lasting and satisfying and joy-giving. The baby is the new beginning. It says of him in the book of Galatians that he's the seed. And I think that's a wonderful picture of what Jesus is. That in this old earth and its brokenness and its, its frustrations and the fact that nothing ever delivers on what it promises you, a seed is dropped from heaven. You think about the potency in a seed. If you had one seed, you have the potential eventually to feed the entire world. Jesus is the seed who's dropped into his old creation as the beginning of something new. Something perfect. He's the only perfection inside his creation. And so he's the affirmation that all of your deepest longings will one day be fulfilled in a renewed, perfect world. So whenever you feel yourself frustrated, disappointed, deluded, disenfranchised, and any other D that you can think of, when you feel these things, it's not that there's something wrong with you. Even if you feel depressed, let me throw another one in there. It's not necessarily that there's something wrong with you. It's that there's an echo in your heart that you know you were made for something better. And that you can only find the fulfillment of all that desire in the seed, in the baby, in Jesus. And just as surely as he was born, he died and he rose from the dead as a moment of victory in the beginning of everything new, so also will all of your desires find their fulfillment in what Christ is doing, the newness that is coming out of the oldness in a creation remade. The birth of that baby was the moment in history when everything began again.